the Christian year this week, um, we begin with uh, the Lenten Ember Days, which uh, the first Ember Day was yesterday, Wednesday, and then Friday and Saturday of this week are the Lenten Ember Days. They are days set aside um, by the church for two distinct reasons. Uh, one is to pray for um, God to send laborers into the field, for God to make um, ready the minds of men to become good priests and deacons. And so during these days we pray for uh, people who are preparing, discerning calls to ordination and for those who have um, received such vocations and are engaged in uh, the ordained ministry. There are also times that come roughly around the changing of the seasons. And so we take these days to um, recall God's mighty acts in creation, um, how he provides for us at different times of the year, um, seed time and harvest and, and the different aspects that make up our place in the created order. Uh, these are two of the main functions of the ember days. The ember days that occur in other seasons are days typically that we would, we would fast more than we usually do, um, but of course we're right at the beginning of our Lenten fast right now, so um, we're, fa we're fasting anyway at this point in time. We are coming to the end of the first week in Lent, and I would encourage you that if you have not um, been engaging in any Lenten disciplines, it's certainly not too late, plenty of time to take up the disciplines of fasting and prayer, study of scripture and almsgiving, and um, even myself have been thinking about tweaking some of mine um, as I'm starting to live into this, this year's Lent. Um, keep that in mind. March the 12th is uh, the feast day of St. Gregory the Great. And um, I don't know if anybody, everybody knows this, but when a feast day falls on a Sunday, it's not typically celebrated or it's transferred to the nearest convenient day. So in this case, uh, the church moves the feast day of uh, St. Gregory the Great to um, Monday. But Gregory the Great is an immensely important figure in the history of the church. And, um, born around the year 540 um, into, uh, into uh, Rome. He was born in Rome at, when Rome was just just at probably its, its lowest point. Um, racked by an um, invasion. Uh, the last emperor had been long since deposed. And Gregory was born into um, a family of, of great people. I think his great-great-grandfather was a pope. And he had uncle, another uncle that was a pope. His mother ended up becoming a saint. And two of his aunts became saints. Um, so he came from this family of just great um, Christians but also great civic leaders. He received a great education and, and was known for the gift of um, administration. And so actually became the, um, what we would call the prefect of Rome. Um, he was basically the main administrator. He was in charge of the city of Rome and executed his duties um, with faithfulness and great care and his fame began to grow. But when his father passed away, he decided to take all his family's wealth 
and convert their estates into monasteries. And they converted this villa into a monastery they called St. Andrews, and then Gregory became just a regular monk there. Um, not the prior, uh, he just became a monk. And he considered those days to be the happiest days of his life. And he really loved just the rhythm of the Benedictine life. And uh, he took the time, like, just diving into scripture and prayer. But his gifts, um, I guess, just were too important for, for people to just let him be in the monastery. So he was eventually called by the Pope, uh, the Bishop of Rome, to be the ambassador of, of, of the Pope to the eastern capital in, in Constantinople. And so he was sent to the east and um, helped, you know, kind of grow the bonds of the church uh, it, in the, you know, establish good ties between the east and the west. And um, it gave him an opportunity to live as a monk. And so he lived in sort of the Latin district of town and lived with... Um, Greek monks and immersed himself into the life of a Greek monastic and lived well. Eventually he was called back to Rome and became the secretary of the Pope. Um, and when the Pope died, he, he could read you know, the tea leaves, so he decided to leave town um, or try to get as far from town as he possibly could because he was afraid they were going to make him Pope, which they did. And uh, they, he did not have a chance to get very far before they said, in a unanimous citywide decision, um, the bishops agreed, and at that point in time, the Roman Senate also had to consent if you were made Bishop of Rome. And so everybody wanted him, so he had to take this role, which meant that he couldn't engage in the monastic life that he loved so much anymore and had to take on these, these duties of being a real pastor of pastors and making sure that the church was taken care of, but also, I mean, Rome was just um, besieged with plague and famine and flood and all these things, so he had to take care of all the people, and there was the constant barbarian invasions, and these things really took a toll on him and weighed on him, and, um, but he did his duty, um, and the things that God had called him to with just immense skill. And he took the opportunity to really strengthen the role of the Bishop of Rome, make it this sort of unifying force in the West. It was because of him that uh, Christianity all throughout Western Europe became united, uh, because at that point in time it was very separated, and there wasn't a unifying liturgy, and there's all these different languages. So he helped reform the liturgy and then spread its use throughout Europe to strengthen the church, because I think you could see that the days of Roman order were over and that the church was really going to be the thing that kept um, civilization and people alive. And um, that was kind of what he did. Um, he was constantly concerned um, for the welfare of his people to the point that it really took a toll on his health. And I hear that... Um, Right before he died, this was kind of the thing that really got him. He just found out, I like, they, he, he tried everything he could do to get food dispersed to the peoples and get everything organized so no one would starve. And the plague and the famine was so strong that he just couldn't do it. And he felt that 
as people were dying that it was somehow his fault. He, like if he were only a better organizer and administrator and distributor, that everybody would survive. And he just broke down into tears when the news came that people were still dying. And um, it wasn't long after that that he ended up dying. Um, after the next bishop of Rome was elected, quite literally the whole city of Rome came up to his doorstep and said, make this man a saint. <laughs> and he was unanim unanimously proclaimed a saint um, with speed very fast after his death. Similar to what happened in our time with John Paul II, um, very, very quick um, in terms of the, the life of the church. Usually the process of being made a saint takes a long time. Gregory, it was, it was very quick. Maybe the quickest in history. He um, left us a collection of some 800 letters, um, a book on uh, morals, which is actually a commentary on Job, a commentary on Ezekiel, commentary on the Gospels, He's the last doctor of the Latin church, the Western church, and uh, wrote this book here, the book of the pastoral rule, which has been a standard for priests and bishops for the last 1,500 years. Um, he, he did something unique. Instead of like um, when you're thinking about counseling people, just giving out generic rules, he took different types of people and discussed how priests and bishops should minister to each type of people and how they should give them spiritual counsel and advice. It was really, really quite groundbreaking. And um, this book has stood the test of time in that respect. Uh, for Anglicans, he's also very important because he helped spur the re-Roman Christianization of, of Great Britain. And um, he sent... St. Augustine of Canterbury to Britain to re-evangelize the country that had been, um, that it sort of after the fall of Roman civilization fell apart. Um, he helped re-establish the gospel there, um, which was something that he had wanted to do when he was a youth. He wanted to be a missionary, but he wasn't able to do that, so he made sure that he would send missionaries out, not just to England, but to other portions of Northern Europe. That is Pope Gregory the Great. There's a lot more that could be said about him. I'd highly encourage you to explore him a little bit more. Our other um, saint of the week is actually the first Archbishop of Canada, Robert McRae. He was uh, a missionary and um, was the Bishop of Rupert's Land in Canada, which is this massive, massive geographical area um, the seat of this diocese would have been Winnipeg, but I mean it goes all the way north to Hudson Bay. It has to be, uh, I mean it's a massive, massive area. I wish I could explain to you how big it is. Um, he was in charge of this area, um, administrating it for the church, and uh, this was really in a time when the church in Canada had really set, begin, been able to separate itself from the church in England, and he helped set out, set up the administration of the diocese, went around, you know, the standard preaching on horseback and all that stuff. Um, but he had a massive area to cover, and he covered it well and, and did a great job, um, so much so that when um, the Church of Canada began to organize itself, he was unanimously elected the first Archbishop of Canada and then took 
took um, that place at a time when the Anglican Church throughout the world was beginning to unify in ways that it never had. And so as bishops began to gather in um, Lambeth, the palace where the Archbishop of Canterbury resides, um, people started coming you know, from Australia, all throughout Africa, um, the United States, Canada. He would have been part of some of those early gatherings of world, the worldwide Anglican communion. He um, seemed destined for a future in the church. He had always been interested in religious things and um, as a young, a young boy, and I guess they said he had a secret attraction to Anglicanism. He was from Scotland, and they were mostly Presbyterians at that time, but he was really drawn to Anglicanism. Um, Trevor and I found this bizarre story about how, um, I guess he was with a group of people, and they were trying to tell the future from dropping eggs into a glass. This process is actually called Oviamancy, um, but it's it's some kind of bizarre way to tell the future. I'm I'm surprised that he was even involved in it in the first place. But it, while they were dropping eggs in the glass to tell the future of people, this egg eventually, uh, I guess, led them to believe that young Robert McRae was going to be in charge of a um, large group of of he would be a great preacher without a church, and in a way, that's what he was. Um, he rather had administered a large group of land and um, took care of many churches instead of just one church. Um, I honestly don't know much more about him. One of the fascinating things about the reunification of Anglicanism at this point in time is that we in America are now um, introduced to all these Canadian saints and this is this is one of their greats so we now have opportunity to learn more about them which we will continue to do so and also very many Scottish saints and this guy the Scots did a lot of job um, settling Canada and so that tradition of Scottish Christianity has now been introduced to us so we'll be hearing more about Scottish Christianity and Canadian Christianity in the weeks and months to come. Sorry, guys. I forgot. <laughs>